Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Outgrowth Marketer of the Month. I'm your host, Dr. Saksham Shada. I'm the creative director at Outgrow.co. And for this month, we're going to interview Eli Rubel, who is the CEO of Mattermade, which is a demand efficiency agency that has helped some of the most iconic SaaS companies of our generation grow. Thanks for joining us, Elias. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, Eli, we're going to start with a rapid-fire round just to break the ice. You get three passes. In case you don't want to answer the question, you can just say pass, but uh, try to keep your answers to one word or one sentence only, okay? Sounds fun. Let's do it. All right, so the first one. At what age do you want to retire? 40. How long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? Seven minutes. Most embarrassing moment of your life. Oh man, that would take me a second to think about, so I'll skip it. Favorite color? Blue. What time of day are you most inspired? Either first thing in the morning or if I happen to be energized at night, like 10 o'clock at night. But usually I'm asleep by then. Okay, how many hours of sleep can you survive on? I need eight hours of sleep or I'll be a bad person to interact with. Fill in the blank. An upcoming marketing trend is blank. Uh, dark social is overhyped. The city in which the best kiss of your life happened. Uh, San Francisco. Pick one, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey? Uh, Dorsey, for sure. The biggest mistake of your career? Uh, getting too caught up in the noise of business, just generally. How do you relax, speaking of which? <laughs> <laughs> I relax by spending time in nature with family and friends. How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? I have two oat milk lattes every single day. A habit of yours that you hate. I say like too much. The most valuable skill you've learned in life. Empathy. And the last one is your favorite Netflix show. Oh God, I haven't watched Netflix in a minute, so... Uh, I'll say Stranger Things because it's easy to think of. Okay, well, that was the end of the uh, rapid fire round and you scored nine and 10 because you passed only one. So that's good. So tell us about dark social. What is dark social? <laughs> dark social is this interesting thing right now that uh, I think it's becoming a hot topic, but it's it's championing the idea that there's a bunch of stuff that happens on social and out there that you can't measure, but we should be investing in. And inherently that idea is right. Like th there are plenty of things that are worth doing that you can't measure, but in practical application, if you're trying to justify budget to a CFO, it's really hard to, to, to chalk it up to dark social and throw a bunch of budget at it. So I think it's, I think it is an attempt to put a nice term on something that's otherwise uncomfortable um, 
so that budget can be allotted to it and CFOs will be comfortable with it. But at the end of the day, it's still something that's really hard to measure. And I don't think it's worth hyping about. It's just a definition for a category that's otherwise hard to measure. So I feel the same way about that as I do. You know, product-led growth is another one. And even ABM, like these are all terms for things that have already existed for a long time. What do you think? One of our clients, right? Dropbox. What do you think Dropbox was doing when they first had the, you know, invite a friend and get some free storage? Like that is classic viral loops, product-led growth. I mean, so it's always existed, product-led growth has, but the market's super hyped about it right now. It's like, oh, what are we going to do about product-led growth? It's like, well, if you are a good product person, this is, you know, something you're thinking through anyway. Um, it's just now it's the the zeitgeist of conferences and, and all these things. So um, I'm not necessarily knocking it. I'm just saying I think it's funny that certain certain things get hyped up like this when it's like, of course you need to be thinking about this, or of course you need to, but this has already existed. Um I'll step off my soapbox now. That was a, a spicy way to get it started for you. <laughs> so speaking of like activities in marketing, particularly whose uh, short-term ROI is not measurable, what are some other things you think that are short-term not measurable and then are always projected as long-term, but you can never tell? Short-term not, not measurable. It is really hard to launch like a... Well, A, to answer your question accurately, you have to understand more about the ICP, right? So um, ICP, what's the ACV, and therefore, what's the buying cycle like? I think a lot of uh, marketers get pressure from board and CEOs to launch something and augment the business metrics, the key metrics in a short period of time. And by short period of time, I mean, you know, they're asked, it's a monthly, like, what's, what's the update? you know, first month, second month, third month, by the third month, they're like, why isn't this working? And the real answer is, you know, if you're in a mid-market on up sales cycle, um, some of the marketing programs you have to invest in there are going to take three months to, to really birth into the wild in the first place well, right? If you're doing account-based marketing one to few, one to one, that is that easily is a three-month lift to get to the point where, Sales and marketing are playing the same game together well. Everything is well-researched, well-orchestrated um, to get to the point where you're starting to see even leading indicators of success. And you know, that's then compounded by the idea that what if, what if your contracts or what if your sales cycles take three, six, nine months to close? Well, you shouldn't measure an account-based marketing program or any marketing program in my mind by top of funnel vanity metrics like MQLs, really you should be measuring it by bottom of funnel revenue generated. And so you could be three, six, nine months out from truly being able to benchmark how this program did um, based on that piece alone. Did that answer your question? It did, yeah. Uh, so I was gonna say, so what advice would you have for growing in these particular precarious recession-ridden economic climate then? And how can one show up for their team in times of fear, uncertainty, and doubt that is all around us. Okay, so I'll, I'll break that into two questions. The the how to show up for the team, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I'll ask you to remind me about that one once I answer the first <laughs> okay. piece. But what should people be focused on in these times? So I think in marketing, especially in SaaS and B2B marketing, there's a lot of talk about demand capture versus 
uh, demand creation, right? Demand capture is like people out there with intent, they're looking to buy, they know they have a problem. We need to go capture those folks in this moment. And then demand creation, right? It's people who should be using our product, who probably have a need, but they haven't identified it yet. And we need to do some education and nurturing. Um, if I were to really just distill that down. So most marketers out there are thinking about these two categories and figuring out how to align budget based on that. But I think it's kind of missing a bit of, not missing the point, but it's jumping to the end too quickly. Um, I'll use a little bit of storytelling to, to set the stage here or to, to give an example. So I was very competitive in rowing, raced for the US team at, at Worlds for ocean rowing in 2018. And if we were to go back and say demand capture versus demand gen, that would be like our coach coming to us and saying, we need to go out and get this number of wins. Do it. Like, and, and like, let's go find the low hanging fruit. Let's just go get those wins. And then the other one would be like, you know, we need to go out and um, we need wins, but we know that they're going to, the races aren't for six more months. So like, let's get those races on our calendar. Um, it largely ignores, it, it, it's, it's cutting to the end of the journey, but largely ignoring all of the work that goes into being able to win in the first place, right? There's nutrition, there's training, there's sleep, there's all of these factors, um, just readiness factors that ultimately set you up to be the best at demand capture and the best at uh, demand creation, right? To be the best at winning races when they're tomorrow and to be the best at winning races when they're six months from now. And so I like to think of that, that kind of behind the scenes piece as demand efficiency. I think right now there's a lot of talk about how to be more efficient and more scalable and more sustainable with our efforts. Um, it's not growth at all costs. It's shit. We really need to care about costs to acquire. We really need to care about, um, you know, how efficient are we in each of these channels? And so demand efficiency looks at the full picture, the full marketing picture, um, not just what is it costing us, but what are all of the surfaces where a buyer goes in their journey and all of the opportunities that are lost where cost to acquire is driven up because they've been ignored. So there's plenty of handoffs, right? From top of funnel down to mid funnel, sales gets involved, sales passes that on. How is marketing still touching it at that point? So the analysis of top of funnel, mid funnel, bottom of funnel, and all of the surfaces in a marketing program and generating essentially like a health check on what a company's demand efficiency is. I think a lot of folks are racing again to get to this demand capture, demand creation without taking that step back and seeing how they're doing across these surfaces and then putting programs into place to solve for those things. I mean, we're able to, when I think about the results Mattermade has put on the board, we go in and we're able to commonly reduce cost to acquire by 15% plus within the first 60 days of an engagement across you know our average results and the way we're able to do that in the first 60 days reliably is looking at those ignored spaces right and so if you're thinking about your budget and you're trying to justify with your cfo as a marketer or as a ceo what we should be investing in marketing well if you're able to free up 15 percent of your budget to grow just through inefficiencies that you get rid of that's huge right and that's that's just like average in the first 60 days. There are plenty of companies where we can go in and see like 300 plus percent um, efficiency is driven. So I think people are too quick to jump to the end, should be focused on 
the, the kind of heart of the, of the journey to get there before then looking at those other two pieces. Did that answer that first question? Yes. And so about the second part then, how can one show up for their team in times of fear, uncertainty, and doubt? Yeah. I mean, I think it's twofold. One is setting really clear expectations. I think people flounder when they feel uncertainty and they haven't been given clear expectations. Like what, what is expected of them? What are the operating parameters for their role and the environment? Like if you went into your role with a certain goal, now the market's totally shifted and you're held to that same goal, or you think maybe you're going to be held to that same goal. That's going to create a ton of anxiety and distraction from you actually being good at your job. And so I think leaders very quickly need to reset the stage. Hey, this is the new world we're operating in. It's not the one that we had a second ago. Here are the new inputs. And based on that, here's the output that we can, we are going to expect and making sure that that feels realistic to the leaders and then is communicated in a way that feels realistic to the individuals on the team. So just kind of resetting the table on that front. And then the rest of it's just all of the things that you should be doing anyway, which is, you know, spending time, building relationships, making sure that your people can talk to you and feel heard and seen. Um, yeah. So could you give us an example of a company that you've worked with anonymously that has actually nailed these two right or rightishly? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that I can certainly think of plenty of examples of this across our portfolio, you know, whether it's Loom, Com, Hopin, Dropbox, um, plenty of great companies who have who've done a really good job of these things. But I won't speak specifically about anyone by name, just out of respect for their privacy. Um, but I think the companies that we've worked with who do a good job of this set goals and then set micro goals leading up to them that are very achievable and celebrate those wins. And they take the time to celebrate the momentum, especially in marketing and especially in startups. It's easy to set a big goal. You get there and then you just blow right onto the next goal and you don't take that second to say, holy crap, we've accomplished a lot. And this deserves celebrating and this deserves calling out the people who have been integral in this process. And even some of the people who are supportive in this process, but not you know the key leaders of it. Um, and so I think the companies that I have in my head have done a really good job of creating micro milestones and micro moments of celebration for their teams, which has kept the morale up positive, keeps the, the feeling of tempo and cadence up and positive, and also creates a more hard charging team because they're not just going after this big audacious goal. They're going after a big audacious goal through a series of smaller goals that they feel like they have this winning cadence getting to that big audacious goal. So given your experience working with various companies, how do you think brands can avoid compromising their identity while pursuing this greater growth? Um, I, I don't think brands need to be in a place where they compromise their identity to chase growth as long as they're delivering on, as long as the message that they're putting into the market is delivered on by their product, right? So I think that the, a brand gets into jeopardy if they get out over their skis where, because their, their marketers or, and sales reps are promising something that the product doesn't deliver on. And then they're trying to retain people, you know, through various tactics to, to it's just, that's a bad situation, right? And so as long as what you say you can do is what you can do, 
and the clients are happy for that reason, customers are happy for that reason, your brand is not going to be in jeopardy. Um, I think in these current times, it's about slowing things down a little bit, really focusing on whatever your roots are, going back to those, um, not being in this aggressive growth mindset, but being in this scalable growth mindset, um, which again, on the marketing side, comes back to this demand efficiency idea that I mentioned. Um, but just in general, I think it's a universal statement for companies right now, which is double down on what you're really good at. Don't force inorganic growth that the company isn't ready for, which could get you out over your skis. And there's a way to do that that doesn't sacrifice brand. And what about companies that feel pressured to pivot or something in these times because they feel they might not do well? So what about those companies? How do they go about managing their brand? Yeah, I mean, I think that being nimble in times like these is essential, right? The companies that are stubborn about it will die or or may very well, you know, hurt themselves much more than if they had been nimble. Um, so I, I think like a, an example in my sphere that I'm aware of, there's this company called No Boring Designs, noboringdesigns.com. And they're this like zany design forward design agency. And up until this point, they had only done really big, really expensive projects, uh, working with a lot of our clients like Yelp and Dropbox and stuff. Um, and so we thought of them through this light of like, oh, they're only the, the expensive agency. And they made this big pivot just now to be only focused or mostly focused on low price point, like 2,500 a month and up to deliver campaign creatives and other like sales enablement, campaign assets, things that marketing and sales teams need in a hurry, but they never get because the designers in-house are working on uh, the product design priorities. And so the marketers and sales folks are frustrated. They're like, I just need this tomorrow so I can launch my campaign. So they pivoted to that model, knowing that you know the, the big budgets for these huge website and brand overhauls are slowing down now, but the need to go out and drive growth hasn't slowed down. Um, so I think that's an example, again, in my sphere where I see a company that was doing great at one thing, called it as it was for the current times, and very quickly pivoted to something that they believe is going to work for them now. So just an example. And so given these conditions, uh, what do you think? Is it better to hire in-house for companies or outsource to an agency uh, when is the right time for a business with funding to hire versus outsource? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna differ for every business, and I know that's like a cop out answer, but I'll explain what I mean by that and why. So, certain companies are going to want things in house, just based on like executive personalities, right? There's inherent limitations when you work with an agency around the working style because the agency is going to have a certain way that they like to work and more so more importantly a way that they're efficient and effective and so companies are you know i think companies that are interested in adopting whatever the latest best practices are around how to work in that specific agency's area of expertise will gravitate towards agencies and then they'll adopt those best practices and everyone's better for it but there are some companies that just like hey we're only going to work the way we want to work you and and that won't mesh well with agencies and then they end up in a situation where the agency relationship isn't good because the agency needs to work their way, the company wants to work their way and you get friction. So um, I think working styles is a big important factor there. Uh, right now though, I think 
if anything, working with agencies is more advantageous than it's ever been because of the times, right? The carrying costs for a full-size marketing team that can actually execute programs end-to-end at any decent velocity. When you factor in, you know, salary and benefits and all of the things that go into in-house employees, that's a huge chunk on your P&L every month. And so it's not that you're going to save that huge chunk by going with an agency, but you've created a lot more mobility for yourself in planning because if things were to get worse, now you have to riff that department if it's in-house as opposed to, or riff it down as opposed to going to your agency and saying like, what does a reduced scope look like? Something along those lines. So I think in times like these, the flexibility that agencies bring where you get the same or better expertise with more flexibility is, is pretty key. And what do you think the future holds? Is it going to be more agency oriented? Because we've had several marketers come on and predict that it might actually be more outsourcing oriented than actually having an in-house team. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting movement in the market right now. I don't even think it's necessarily driven so much by agencies as compared to individuals and ICs who would have worked in-house. I think people are getting restless and people are interested in freelancing and um, or either freelancing and consulting on their own or going into an agency environment where they're not married to just one company for three years at a time. And so I think that more than anything will be the forcing function where it'll be harder and harder to hire talented people in-house because those talented people will either be consulting or joining agencies so they can see a broader breadth of challenges and problem sets that just interests them. Um, and then that will force companies to consider agencies more than they ever have in the past, not just because the labor isn't there, but also because the talent is now shifted to another place and companies inherently are going to want to work with the best people. All right. So the last question for you is then, what would you be doing in your life if not this? What would I be doing in my life if not this? I feel like I'm doing, uh, I feel like I'm doing what I want to be doing. Uh, if I were to do anything else, it'd probably be like, go, go be a bartender at the neighborhood pub, chat with the neighbors, sling beer. I don't know. I, I'm pretty, uh, I'm a pretty laid back person. So it's, you know, I spend enough time in nature. I spend a good amount of time with my family. I, I like running a company. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, that was the last question then. Thanks everyone for joining us for this month's episode of Outgrow's Marketer of the Month. That was Eli Rubel, who is the CEO of Mattermate. Thanks for joining us, Eli. Thanks for having me. Check out their website for more details and we'll see you once again next month with another Marketer of the Month.